Uh, well, thank you very much. It's a real privilege to be here to look at Ezekiel chapter 34. We've been going through the book of Ezekiel for a while now. Last week, you guys got up to chapter 16, and today we're taking a jump from chapter 16 all the way to chapter 34. So as we enter chapter 34 tonight, you need to know something really big that happened between those two chapters, and that is Jerusalem has just been completely destroyed by Babylon. So Ezekiel and many other Israelites, they are over in Babylon. They're in exile because of their sin. At Uni Church International, in the morning we've been saying it's like they're in God's naughty corner. Israel had been sent to the Babylonian naughty corner to sit there and to think about their idolatry, to think about their murder, to think about their theft and their mistreatment of the poor. They're away from the promised land. They're away from the temple. They're away from the rest of the Israelites who are still down in Jerusalem. And from chapter 4 all the way up to chapter 33, Ezekiel has been saying to Israel, repent, change, or God will destroy Jerusalem. And for the last five years he has been saying this, and Israel don't change. And now the unthinkable has just happened in chapter 33. God destroys Jerusalem. In 586 BC, Babylon again attacked Jerusalem and they defeated and they burned the temple to the ground. And in chapter 33, which is just before tonight's chapter, in chapter 33, an Israelite escapes from Jerusalem and comes all the way to Babylon and announces to Ezekiel and the exiles the horrifying news that the city has just fallen. Jerusalem has been destroyed, the temple is in ruins. The thing which God has been threatening ever since chapter 4 of Ezekiel, has just happened. And all of a sudden, Ezekiel and the exiles, they find themselves without a home. They find themselves without hope. And you might think that the rest of the book of Ezekiel that you guys are going to be looking at for the next four weeks is really just going to be God saying to them, I told you so. I spent five years warning you, I told you so. But actually, the remainder of the book of Ezekiel is God giving messages of hope and restoration, forgiveness and a future. You can think of the book of Ezekiel roughly broken into two halves. Chapter 1 to 33 is all about the present punishment, which ends with Jerusalem's destruction in chapter 33. And in the second bit, 34 to 48, is all about a future hope. And as Jerusalem is lying in ruins and the temple is a pile of ash, we start to get those messages of a hope for future tonight as we head into Ezekiel chapter 34. And tonight we'll have that Bible reading now and then I'll be back after that to uh, unpack it. Thanks. Ezekiel chapter 34. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak, or healed the sick, or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays, or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, 
they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth, and no one searched or looked for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, because my flock lacks a shepherd, and so has been plundered and has become food for all the wild animals, and because my shepherds did not search for my flock, but cared for themselves rather than for the flock. For the flock. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds, and will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from, the ten- from tending the flock, so that the shepherds can no longer can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths, and it will no longer be found food for them. For this is what the Sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines and in all the settlements in the land. I will tend them in a good pasture, and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. There they will lie down in good grazing land, and there will be and there they will feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the Sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. But the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. As for you, my flock, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. I will judge between one sheep and another, and between rams and goats. Is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture? Must you also trample the rest of the pasture with your feet? Is it not enough for you to drink clear water? Must you also muddy the rest with your feet? Must my flock feed on what you have trampled and drink what you have muddied with your feet? Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says to them. See, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep, because you shot with flank and shoulder, butting all the weak sheep with your horns until you have driven them away. I will save my flock, and they will no longer be plundered. I will judge between one sheep and another. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will make a covenant of peace with them and rid the land of savage beasts so that they may live in the wilderness and sleep in the forest in safety. I will make them and the places surrounding my hill a blessing. I will send down showers in season. There will be showers of blessing. The trees will yield their fruit and the ground will yield its crops. The people will be secure in their land. They will know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and rescue them from the hands of those who enslave them. They will no longer be plundered by the nations, nor will wild animals devour them. They will live in safety and no one will make them afraid. 
I will provide for them a land renowned for its crops, and they will no longer be victims of famine in the land or bear the scorn of the nations. Then they will know that I, the Lord their God, am with them, and, they, and that they, the Israelites, are my people, declares the Sovereign Lord. You are my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the Sovereign Lord. I used to work as an engineer, and every 12 months, you would have an end-of-year performance review. That's the kind of thing that is happening in the first few verses of Ezekiel chapter 34, except it's not an end-of-year performance review, it's an end-of-Jerusalem performance review. But what God is doing is He is assessing the performance of Israel's shepherds and how they've led the sheep. And by Israel's shepherds, what He means is Israel's kings. Because shepherds was a very common way of describing a country's king in the ancient Middle East. So we have records of the Babylonians referring to the kings as shepherds, the Egyptians did it, and of course Israel did it. And calling your king a shepherd, it kind of captured the idea that the king was supposed to lead and care for and govern and provide for his people, sort of like a shepherd is supposed to do that for the sheep. So this is why when David becomes king in 2 Samuel, God says to him, you will shepherd my people Israel. So whenever you see the word shepherd in Ezekiel 34, kind of swap it in your mind for the word king. And you very quickly see that the first few verses is a performance review of Israel's kings. It starts from verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds, the kings of Israel... Prophesy and say to them, This is what the Sovereign Lord says, Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? So God's performance review of Israel's kings, it starts with the accusation that you kings only took care of yourself. You did not take care of the flock. And the following verses are really examples of how they did that. Have a look at verse 3. You eat the curds, clothe yourself with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. Now the king's job is to take care of the people, but Israel's kings, Israel's shepherds, they haven't done that. Instead of caring for the flock, Israel's shepherds have, look at what they've done, they've eaten the curds. They've stolen the good, rich, and fatty milk from the sheep, and they've taken it for themselves. Furthermore, they've clothed themselves with the wool. That's a picture of the shepherd kind of stealing the wool off the sheep's back to keep himself warm while the sheep goes cold. The shepherds have fleeced the flock. And worst of all, I think, Israel's shepherds, Israel's kings, have slaughtered the choice animals. That's a picture of the shepherd killing the best and tastiest of the flock and eating them. So the performance review of Israel's shepherds is they've taken the milk, they've stolen the wool, and they have killed and eaten for themselves. They've left the sheep thirsty, hungry, and sometimes dead. Now remember, this is a, this is a metaphor. It's not literally descri- describing what the kings have done. They haven't been going around stealing milk from people's fridges, woolly jumpers off the clothesline, and then eating some of the people. <laughs> it's a metaphor. The point is that Israel's kings have not been caring... For the people. They've been using them, actually. 
And if you read through the narrative in First and Second Kings, uh, you find plenty of examples of kings abusing the people. Uh, in fact, Israel's best king, Israel's best shepherd, King David, actually did it. Remember, he falls for Bathsheba. But Bathsheba actually is married and belongs to someone else, but David takes her anyway. He sleeps with her. He organises for her husband to be killed on the battlefield. And then he takes her as his wife. And that's David. That's Israel's best king by far. And as you read the history of Israel's kings, you find that they not only lead the flock for themselves, but I think worst of all, they actually lead the flock into sin. See, very often it was the king that led the people into idolatry and the worship of other gods. And here's the point that God is making in this performance review. It was the kings that actually led this flock to do all the things which resulted in God exiling them. That's what verse 5 to 6 of the performance review is saying. Have a look at verse 5. So they were scattered. That's a reference to the exile. They were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth, and no one searched or looked for them. You see what God's saying? He's saying, you kings, you kings of Israel, you not only used the flock for your own greedy purpose, but you led them into sin. You led them to commit all the things that I put them into exile because of. It's not a very flattering performance review, is it? Now, here's an illustration for you. When I was a teenager, I used to occasionally work for the Cerebral Palsy Association. Cerebral Palsy is a disease that affects people's movement, they often can't move, it can affect their speech and their hearing and their learning ability. And our job was to uh, pick up cerebral palsy sufferers in a bus, in wheelchairs, and take them to sporting events, like the basketball or the footy, and then at the games we would get them food, we would get them drink, we would undress or dress them if they were getting too hot. Now can you imagine me sitting there at the game with them, and I start to get a little bit thirsty because I'm yelling, and I notice the guy that I'm caring for, he's got a drink. And so I kind of just take it. And there's nothing he can do about it. I have his drink, and because he's got ice in it, I think get a little bit cold. And I notice he's wearing a woolly jumper. And so I take it off him, and I put it on me. And there's nothing he can do about it. And imagine the game finishes, and we're wheeling them through the city, and I convince them to help me steal stuff from a local convenience store. But we get caught, we get arrested, and we spend the night in jail. Now, here's my question for you. What do you think should be done to me as the person who was responsible for their care? Now, surely as an absolute minimum, I should be fired. (laughs) I was hired to look after these people. I was hired to take care of them, but instead I stole from them for my own good, and I led them into trouble that ended them in a locker. Surely I should be fired. But you see, that's what the kings of Israel had been doing. The kings were hired, if you want to put it in that way. They were anointed into the role of shepherd to look after the people. But instead, they've been drinking the milk, they've been fleecing the flock of their wool, and they've led them into sin, and God has exiled them over it. And in verse 7 to 10, God fires them. 
That's what happens next. He fires the bad shepherds. Look at verse 7. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, because my flock lacks a shepherd and so has been plundered and has become food for all the wild animals, and because my shepherds did not search for my flock but cared for themselves rather than for my flock, therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says, I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. Here's the firing. I will remove them from tending the flock, so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths, and it will no longer be food for them. God fires the shepherds. And I love those last few words, I will rescue my flock from the shepherds' mouths. That's actually what it feels like to be stuck under such terrible leadership. It feels like you need to be rescued. Imagine in, in that example, of the cerebral palsy association. Imagine how it feels for that guy. As I take his drink and there's nothing he can do, as I lead him into stealing stuff from the convenience store, then he wants to be rescued from such terrible care and leadership. And so God fires the kings of Israel. He takes them away from leading the flock. He rescues the flock from the bad shepherds. There's a big problem with that, isn't there? That actually leaves Israel with no shepherd. It leaves them with no king. Like, you can't just fire me from my role at the Cerebral Palsy Association and then say to the people, uh, yeah, I did you a favour, I got rid of uh, that guy, uh, now you just need to look after yourself. Get yourself to the game, get yourself the food, get yourself home again. You see the problem? I still need a shepherd. So the solution is not to remove the shepherding system. The solution is to replace the bad shepherds with good ones. That's what happens next in Ezekiel chapter 34. After God fires the bad shepherds, he hires good ones. But did you notice in the reading who it is that he appoints to that role? He appoints himself. God himself will shepherd his people. That's what's going on from verse 11 down to verse 24. Let me just read the first few verses of that and just listen to God um, and how he will shepherd his people. Verse 11. But this is what the Sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on the day of clouds and darkness. I will rescue them from the nations and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines, and in all the settlements of the lands. I will tend them in good pasture, and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. There they will lie down in good grazing land, and there they will feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak, but the sleek and strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. Do you hear the repetition of the word I? I will shepherd my people. Can you imagine what that felt like to the Israelites in exile to hear that? I mean, imagine you'd been in exile for 10 years 
And we've just heard that your holy city has been destroyed. The temple has been burnt to the ground. And instead of God turning up and saying, I, I told you, I warned you, he actually turns up and he says, I will take care of you. I will shepherd you. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. I will make you lie down in good pasture. I will bind the injured. Can you imagine the hope of hearing God say, I will be your shepherd? It's that hope of finally having a good shepherd, of having God himself shepherd you. It's that hope which makes what God says next in verse 23 utterly jarring. Because as soon as God raises the hopes of these bruised and battered sheep, that God himself will shepherd them. He says this in verse 23. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. What's going on there? God has just spent the last 11 verses saying, I myself will shepherd you. I myself will bind up the injured. I myself will search for the lost. And then all of a sudden, he seems to handball the job to somebody else. And worst of all, he handballs it to someone who he refers to as my servant David. Not literally meaning King David himself. He's been dead for quite a while. What God means is, he'll get someone from David's line to shepherd them. But just, just stop there for a second. And imagine what that feels like and sounds like to the exiles. Because it's the shepherds, it's the kings from David's line that have gotten them into this mess to start with. It's those kings from David's line who have been fleecing them. They've lived off the flock. It's the kings from David's line that led them into idolatry that resulted in the exile. It's those kings that God just fired and said that he will do the job himself. So which one is it? Will God be their shepherd? That's what he promises in verse 11 to 22. Or will he install someone from David's line to be the shepherd? Because that's what he promises in verse 23. Which promise will God keep? And of course, if you know your New Testament, you know that the answer is he keeps both. Because both those promises get fulfilled in Jesus, who comes as Israel's king, as Israel's shepherd. Because Jesus is fully God. He is God in human form. He has God come to shepherd his people. But at the same time, he's descended from David's line. He's a shepherd from David's line. So Jesus is the one who fulfills God's promise to personally shepherd his people and to have someone from David's line shepherd his people. Jesus is the good shepherd that God is promising to give his people in Ezekiel 34. And when Jesus comes 600 years later and says, I am the good shepherd, Jesus has Ezekiel 34, I think, in the back of his mind. In John 10, Jesus says, we'll just look at this one verse, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. When Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, he doesn't just want the crowd to picture Jesus cuddling and caring for fluffy white sheep. That's part of what they're supposed to see, but Jesus wants them to see a whole lot more than that. Jesus wants the crowd, and he wants us to see that he is the good shepherd that was promised in Ezekiel 34. He's the fulfilment of that. 
And what makes Jesus the good shepherd is that he is the very opposite of the bad shepherds that God just fired. Those bad shepherds, they put themselves above the flock, but Jesus, as the good shepherd, is the very opposite, isn't he? Jesus never, never takes the milk from the flock. The only cup that Jesus takes from you is the cup of God's wrath. And he drinks every last drop of that on the cross. So you and I don't even have to taste it. Unlike the bad shepherds, Jesus never fleeces the flock. He actually lets the flock fleece him. He gets stripped and nailed to a cross so that you and I might be clothed in his righteousness. Unlike the bad shepherds, Jesus never kills and eats any of the lambs. He allows himself to be killed so that the flock might live. And every time we take communion, we picture eating his body so that we might live. Unlike the bad shepherds, Jesus never leads the flock into sin, into God's punishment in exile. He does the opposite. He leads us out of sin, out of exile, and into God's presence. And all at enormous cost to himself. Because he's the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He's the good shepherd. And he's your shepherd. He's your king. Your king does that for you. And if that's not enough to bring joy to your heart, the closing verses of Ezekiel chapter 34, it paints this gorgeous picture of where your shepherd is leading you. Pick it up from verse 25. I will make a covenant of peace with them and rid the land of savage beasts so that they may live in the wilderness and sleep in the forests with safety. I will make them and the places surrounding my hill a blessing. I will send down showers in seasons. There will be showers of blessings. The trees will yield their fruit and the ground will yield its crops. The people will be secure in their land. Uh, now, it's helpful to remember that those words were first spoken to Israel while they were in exile in Babylon, and God promises them two things, doesn't he? Firstly, he promises that he will make a covenant of peace with them. You see that in verse 25, I will make a covenant of peace with them. And secondly, God promises that he will bring them home, that he will lead the flock out of exile, he will bring them home to the promised land where they will live in prosperity. And you see that in the rest of the paragraph. But I want you to just zoom in on that last little blue circle on the screen. The Good Shepherd and what he does. Now, surely, that is what Israel just long to hear. That's what you long to hear when you're in exile in the northern corner. That's what you long to hear after you've just heard that Jerusalem has been destroyed and the temple has been burnt to the ground. You long to hear that God comes to offer you some covenant, some agreement of peace and will bring you back to dwell in the land even though you don't deserve it. And historically, that's actually what happened. A few decades after Ezekiel, the Babylonian Empire gets overrun, it, it crumbles, it's, it's defeated, and the exiles actually get sent home to Jerusalem to rebuild, to rebuild the temple and to live in the land. But that was just a picture of a much greater fulfillment that was to come in Jesus. Because ever since Genesis chapter 3, humanity was thrown out of the Garden 
aren't they? We have been in exile, if you want to call it that, away from God's presence because of our sin. And yet through the crucifixion of Jesus, through the good shepherd laying down his life, God has done those very two things for us. He has made a covenant of peace with us. Matthew 26, at the last supper, Jesus picks up the cup and he says, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. Our good shepherd established a covenant of peace between us and God by laying down his life for the forgiveness of sin. And because of that, we don't have to spend eternity in exile from God. We, we can enter our true promised land of heaven. We are led out of exile and into God's presence. Is it? All those promises of Ezekiel 34, that God himself will shepherd the sheep, that someone from David's line will shepherd the sheep, that God will establish a covenant of peace with his people, that God will lead his people out of exile, that they might dwell with him in the land. All of that, all of that, finds its fulfilment in Jesus. And that is so gracious because you and I deserve to stay in exile. We have no right to dwell with God in heaven, but by His grace, our King Jesus, God in the flesh, lays down His life as a covenant of peace so that we might come out of exile, that we might live with God for eternity. He drinks the cup of God's wrath, so we don't have to. We fleece Him. We clothe ourselves in His righteousness. And all that happens at great cost to Him as He lays His life down on the cross. But such is our good and gracious King. Such is our Good Shepherd. Amen.